All right, here we are this evening, and we're going to continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Gospel of Matthew, as you all know. Uh, and tonight, we're going to focus on two verses, chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. And I'm going to read those two verses as we uh, begin our study. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Someone has said, I can't remember exactly where I read this, but they said, it is better to limp into heaven than to leap into hell. And Jesus also talked about these members of our body in chapter 18 of Matthew, where he included the foot. So we've got the eye the hand, and the foot. And of course, we could expand that uh, significantly, I'm sure. I want to also read another verse that's been key uh, in our study. Of course, Jesus is preaching this sermon to his disciples. Now, are they uh, fully discipled at this time? Definitely not, for they are in the learning stage. What does the word disciple mean? Okay, discipline, but they are learners. Students. Students, followers. Okay, <clears throat> so in verse 20 of chapter 5, Jesus makes a statement that had to catch everyone's attention. Look at that verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that had to be a shocking statement to the disciples because they recognized the Pharisees as the crown of religious expression and experience. These were men who knew the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and they practiced their religion through tradition. Now, the last uh, couple of weeks, we've looked at two expressions that began with, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, well, how did they take those two statements? I do, I do not believe for one thing that the Pharisees were here listening to this sermon. But how did they, if someone said to them, are you a murderer or are you an adulterer, how would they have responded to that? 
not me. Why would they say that? Right. They had not performed the act of murder or the act of adultery. But Jesus said, if you're angry with a brother, you have committed murder in your heart. If you have looked at a woman in lust, you have committed adultery with that woman in your heart. So the key that Jesus is bringing out here is the heart. And I think we need to understand that as we enter into the study tonight. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Pluck it out. Gouge it out. That's a hard saying. It is a hard saying. (laughs) Definitely a hard saying. Okay. So, the first thing we have to decide is, is Jesus being literal here? Or is this just a figurative statement that he is making? And what is he saying to us? Think about it. First of all, what about this business of the right eye? It's the master eye, your best eye. It's the best you have to offer. But if your right eye, the best that you have to offer, causes you to sin, then pluck it out. So the first thing this passage says to me is that sin is pretty serious. Sin is serious, to say the least. Look over at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And would someone find that and read it for us? Chapter 3, verse 5? Yes. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay. Put to death. Kill those things that are drawing you away from your relationship with Christ. Put to death those things. There in verse 29, when it says you have, when it says if your right eye causes you to sin, if it leads you into sin, if it trips you up, then pluck it out. In other words, don't look. Don't look. Don't engage in that lingering moment when you suddenly turn viewing truly the, say the beauty of a woman. Didn't God make women to be beautiful? That men would desire them? But that desire is supposed to be in what kind of relationship? One man, one woman. Okay, one man, one woman. And that one man, one woman 
is to be your wife or your husband. Okay. Anything that we put, whether it's viewed with our eyes or heard with our ears or anything that takes the place of our relationship with God is idolatry. I don't think I have to tell you very much about the pornographic industry that's ongoing at this time. It's amazing. Billions of dollars are being consumed in pornography. And I read something on the internet, of course you can't trust everything you, you read on, or see on the internet. But it said that <clears throat> the, the income for pornography is greater than the combined income of NBC, CBS, and ABC. It's also greater than the annual revenue of the National Basketball Association, the National Football League, and Major League Baseball. To me, that's staggering. Absolutely staggering. So what's wrong with pornography? What a stupid question. <clears throat> the first thing it does, in my mind, is it degrades women. It makes them to be objects of sex and not the kind of sex that is foretold or is talked about in scripture. It's horrific. And I heard the other day that <clears throat> there is a movement afoot, and I think it was California, where else? <laughs> In which they're trying to remove the restrictions on the viewing of pornographic material from children to allow children to freely view pornography on the internet in a form of sex education. That to me is beyond incredible. Okay. <clears throat> so, we're to gouge out our eye. Well, we're to put to death those things that our eyes see that are drawing us away from Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote uh, The Cost of Discipleship, made a statement that if our eyes are fixated on things of evil, then we cannot use that eye <coughs> to view God. We cannot use that eye to view God. When was he alive? When was Dietrich alive? He was a Lutheran minister during World War II. And he opposed the, the Nazi regime. He was arrested and imprisoned. 
He was actually released at one time and came back to the United States, but then decided to go back because he wanted to fight against Hitler. In Germany. Yeah. So just a few days before the end of World War II, he was executed. It was the day before. Day before. <clears throat> it's a great book, by the way. If you want to read The Cost of Discipleship. Okay, look over at, uh, let someone look up Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Okay, putting to death, mortifying those things, those misdeeds of the body that cause us to stumble and cause us to, to go away from the teachings of Christ. Okay, some, unfortunately, over the course of time, have taken these words literally, spoken here about gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand, cutting off the foot. How many of you have ever heard of uh, a theologian by the name of Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, he was a Greek from Alexandria in the third century AD. He used to roll around on a bed of briars trying to take away his desire for sexual stimulation. That didn't work. So he took what he considered to be the next logical step and he had himself emasculated. That makes me shiver. <laughs> he was later sorry that he did that because he figured it was a mistake, clearly a mistake. Okay, so the thing that Jesus is calling us to do here it's not only to recognize that sin is serious, but to put it to death. To put it to death. John Stott has a great approach to all this. He says <clears throat> that the eye, things that we look at, that what we should do is not look. That's not simple. I'm sorry, say it again. Not look. The hand is something that represents what we do. Where the hand, the things that we do, we should be doing to the glory of God. And John Stott says, don't do it. And our feet carry us to those places that we have no business going to. And he says, don't go. That's simple enough. Then why do we do it? Good question. Because we, have, we like hard life. Okay. 
We don't want to cut off our hand. No, just because the flesh is weak. You do it because the flesh is weak, and you the flesh is weak. Not strong enough in our, in our own. What did uh, Jesus tell us about discipleship? Look at uh, Luke 9, 23 to 25. 9, 23, 25? Yes. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Okay. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny oneself? I have 12 things up here that it means. And I want you to name them all. Just kidding. <laughs> For me, it means first thing is to money. Know the gods before Him. And don't put yourself before Him. Okay. It's, it's the first commandment. Grace for me. Okay. Take up your cross daily. What had He said right before He made that statement? What did He tell the disciples? Because a man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. So he was going to die, was he not? He was on his way to the cross. And when he said, "If anyone would come after me," he was saying, "If anyone is willing to cast aside their life and follow me, even to the point of death." That's what he was telling his disciples. I've got at least 12 things here. First of all, we know from other scripture that we will receive opposition from our loved ones, our own family. And I don't know about you, Sam, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you've probably experienced that based on your Christian faith. Well, he tells us, look, look, look at the way they treated me. Mm -hmm. So we should expect it's not going to be a bed of roses. No. What did his family think of him? thought he was crazy. crazy. Mm -hmm. He's mad. The reproach of the world. The world is going to be against the believer who practices his faith. Who truly demonstrates that he is the light of the world the salt of the earth. The disciples are supposed to live, and we are his disciples, we are supposed to live in a very different way than the world. 
very different. We're, our light is supposed to shine. We're supposed to be a preservative in the world. Okay. You know all of that for certain. As we look at, at this passage, talking about the eye and the hand, gouging out the eye, cutting off the hand, those are things that shock us. It's almost as if, <clears throat> I don't uh, know if this has ever happened to anyone else. I remember back in my very brief football playing days, and I don't say this because I was a good football player because I wasn't. <laughs> but I, I, do, I do remember one time we were in a, uh, a game and I was playing defensive back and, and the runner broke through the line and was headed in my direction. I uh, realized that I was going to have to do something to prevent him from scoring a touchdown. But all of a sudden as I was prepared to make this game-saving tackle, an offensive lineman from the other team came at me and hit me right square in the solar plexus with an elbow. And I crumpled to the turf. Have you, have you ever been punched in the gut like that? Where it just totally takes the wind, the breath out of you. You just gasp for air. It's a wonder I didn't have cleat marks running up my chest. But in any case, what was so the point of that? He did not score. Did he score? Oh, I, I don't remember. My goodness, I realize how long ago that was. You were trying to stop somebody from scoring. I tried to stop him from scoring, but after I was hit, I realized the only thing I cared about was me <laughs> and whether I was going to survive. I bet they scored. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember that part of the story. Okay. Okay. If you're using football analogies, I was I was watching uh, Saturday uh, show up. Uh, Saturdays in the South, and this particular episode of Bear Bryant, who I've long admired because uh, I mean, people played for Bear Bryant if they survived, they were champions. And uh, one of the things that Exactly right. <clears throat> okay, and I don't think he was calling for us to be blind, handless, or footless as we as we serve for him. But we are going to face persecution. There's no question about that. Okay. <clears throat> Look at some of these other uh, scripture. I want to talk about, about some things that took place long before this particular 
passage of scripture was written. If you turn over into your Bibles to Genesis, at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, the very last verse, we read, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So his creative acts were complete at the end of the sixth day. And he declared that his creation was very good, which according to what, I, what little I know about Hebrew means it was what? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. There were no storms, no tsunamis, no wildfires, none of the things that we see in our world today. Adam had a perfect relationship with the Lord. Now keep in mind that when God gave the commandment to Adam, which is in verse, verses 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man, and this is chapter 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the Edenic covenant, only one command. Everything was available to Adam. And then God saw that Adam needed a helpmate. And he created the woman from a rib of Adam. We all know that story. Notice, and I don't know how significant it is, that Eve was not present when God gave Adam the command. Just keep that in the back of your mind. But that doesn't free Adam from his responsibility to be a teacher and to teach Eve about God's rules as far as the, the garden is concerned. Notice how much God gave to Adam. Can you imagine a life more perfect than that? There was no sickness, no sadness, no sorrow, nothing of that nature. He had the freedom to roam in the garden, but more important than anything else, he had a perfect relationship with God. 
for he walked about the garden with God. We'll have that someday. The very same thing. But something went wrong. Something went terribly wrong. In chapter 3, another creature enters into the picture. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is Satan. I don't understand all of this. I don't know that anybody does. But it is significant to read this and to understand what is taking place here. Notice <clears throat> verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So what can we say about what enticed her? The visual appeal. The vision, what she saw. It looked good to the eyes. Is that not the same thing that Jesus is talking about in chapter 5 of Matthew? What she saw, her eyes led her into an act of sin. And this was significant. Why? Did she die? No, then she died later. Yeah, she died physically later but at that instant when she took of the fruit of the forbidden tree she died spiritually and as a result of that act we all have what's known as the original sin and we are guilty at the time of birth we sin because we are sinners we're not sinners because we sin but we are we sin because we're sinners Bob you brought up a, a good point when you said that God gave Adam the command he failed at least from what we know to, to not pass it on but then he failed a second time when he was right there with her and she was going through this act he could certainly could have, you would perceive, stopped her there. Mm -hmm. She knew the rules, so he had told her. She did say we are not supposed to, but then she did. Mm -hmm. So she had been told, you can't do a baby a child to her. Because <laughs> she even said, she even says we're not even supposed to touch it. God didn't say don't touch it, he said don't eat it. Mm. Yeah, she added to the, yeah. the command. I mean, it's... And then something very significant, after all that, something very familiar to all of us is the blame gets passed to everybody but me. Yes. What did, uh, 
Adam said, the woman you gave me. <laughs> we, we all use that. It's called the Genesis 3 blame shift. <laughs> the woman you gave me led me to sin. The devil made me do it. That's what you remember. How many of you remember Flip Wilson? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought he was one of the greatest comics that ever lived. And the thing I liked about Flip Wilson was uh, he was clean, never brought any kind of profanity or anything into his comedy. Okay. Another one that we're also very familiar with, turn over to, um, if I can find it, Second Samuel chapter, 50, chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. I apologize for this mess that I have created oh, no, up here. It's readable. It's readable. In the spring. Th oh, thank you. It's true. <laughs> All right. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't that this Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and, and sl he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. How, would you, how does Scripture describe David? man after God's own heart. So when we read something like that and think about David, we put him kind of on a pedestal, don't we? But yet, in this passage of scripture, we see that David is just like the rest of us. And it was through his eyes, notice in this passage, he saw that the woman was very beautiful. Now he had he has already, according to Jesus, committed adultery. Just by gazing at her and desiring her. Now we see that he carries forth, and there's a couple of things in here that uh, I want to point out. You probably know this. I'm not the only one who can interpret scripture or see something in a passage. Notice who's mentioned in here. Uriah the Hittite. Now that is Bathsheba's husband, mm -hmm. but he's also one of the mighty men. One of David's most loyal and faithful fighters in the wars. So he not only betrays Bathsheba, 
but he betrays her husband and ultimately ends up being guilty of murder because Uriah is killed in battle when he's deliberately placed the forefront of the contest. He should have been at the war, but he should have stayed up and stayed on the couch. David, the couch potato. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jerry. Okay. As we continue on, we're going to probably finish a little early. I want to bring out another uh, passage that's important. We talk about these sins where we are led astray by members of our body, namely the hand, the foot, the eye, and so forth. And we are told as clearly as clear can be that we are to mortify those members, mortify the sin that exists in our body. And there's a passage of scripture, and I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to talk it through. <clears throat> Do you remember the king who reigned before David? A man by the name of Saul. Saul was not God's choice. The people chose Saul because they wanted to be like the other nations and so forth. And Saul had... God commanded Saul through the prophet Samuel to annihilate the Amalekites. Remember that story? <laughs> sure. <clears throat> okay. And when he said annihilate, he meant what? All of annihilate. <laughs> All the possessions of wealth. Yeah. All of the men, the women, the children, the infants, all of the livestock, everything that existed. And, and we cringe when we read something like that. I bet the Lord said that because there was evil in every creature. Don't you think? Yes. Yes, they were. And... This was God's judgment being brought against the Amalekites because of what they had done to the Israelites in a cowardly move. You remember that story? Well, Saul, in his typical brilliance, decided that Agag, not, yes, Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, should be spared and become his lapdog, whatever that might mean. He also selected some choice sheep and livestock and brought them on board. Remember Samuel's rather humorous comment, what is that bleeding I hear in my ears? And Samuel said, bring me Agag. And Agag trots out, he's all happy and so forth. And what does Samuel do? 
He chopped him to pieces with a sword. No more Agag. That was the end of King Agag of the Amalekites. So, I'm going to use that physical illustration of a mortification of an evil king to apply to us and how we are to treat spiritual sin in our lives. We're to hack it to pieces. Now, all of the vision and all of the going forth and the handling and all of that of sinful activities in our life, we are to put to death because those things don't belong in our lives. And in our lives, in the place of those sinful activities, we place the activities that belong to Christ. He alone belongs on our throne. And when we take him off of the throne, we put ourselves on the throne, and all of those acts become acts that are demeaning and take away from the glory of God. Yes, Use the analogy of, uh, of David. I was combined with his contrition and his uh, his prayer in uh, uh, Psalms 51, mm-hmm. where he said, uh, "Lord, I'll send, I send against you, you alone." You alone. And, and I think this ties in with what you're saying tonight. Uh, all sin starts with us. Mm-hmm. Before he sins against Bathsheba, he came in his heart. He, before he killed Uriah, he he, he, he committed that sin in his, in his, in his mind and in his heart. So I think what Jesus is saying here is destroy that sin within us before we carry it out uh, because we're sinning against God, all sinning against God. Yes. That's an excellent point. I I was going to tell a story. I guess I have time to tell it. I don't want to keep you unnecessarily. Um, When I first became a Christian, I was confronted with a, a worked for uh, in the office of the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. And our little minor task that we had was to define a medical system that would service all services. And let me tell you at the outset that the Air Force, the Army, and the Marines, and the Navy do not practice medicine the same way. And we found that out very much to our chagrin. But in any case, <clears throat> Before I became a believer and I was in that organization, in the summer, there were several of us who had birthdays right around the same time. And in order to celebrate, we went to this place that I would not go to today. Uh, I hesitate to even try to describe it, but it was a place where women were paraded before the audience in rather skimpy. You did? So yes, you did. So were you met Judy? No. Oh, oh. Sam. Oh, Sam. You didn't match but anyway. Anyway, Sam. Uh, Bob Garrett said you would say most anything at any inappropriate time. 
Uh, but, any, but anyway, um, you, you get the idea. You know what I'm talking about, I think. So it came that time of year again. And they already knew. I had already told people in the office about my conversion, the fact that I was now a believer, and um, they kidded me quite a bit about it and, you know, made fun of me and so forth. That's okay. But it came time for that celebration again. And I prayed, God, please deliver me from this. I don't want to go. I don't want to be a part of this. And <clears throat> time kept approaching. Nothing was happening. Then finally, one by one, the other three guys in this group of four had a duty call that took them out of town, took them away from the time that we normally would celebrate. And in the meantime, I even got reassigned to another job. And I know for a fact that God did all that. You know, it's not that I was all that important, but God is, and he got the glory for that. And I will never forget that event in my life about how God stepped in and did what I was afraid to do on my own by just saying, I don't want to go. God made it happen. Okay, any comments or questions uh, related to what we've covered tonight. <clears throat>